Welcome to Living Out Loud, Storytelling for Social Change, the podcast where we come together as a community to share our stories and consider alternative perspectives on a wide range of topics. By sharing our stories, each and every one of us can help create the world we want to live in. Storytelling has the power to open minds, touch hearts, and inspire empathy and solidarity. It can move us to think and then act. The opinions and views expressed in this podcast are those of the faculty, staff, and student guests of each episode, but do not necessarily represent the views of Merrimack College. Hi, I'm Deborah Michaels, Director of Women's and Gender Studies and the Executive Producer of Living Out Loud. Today, we have a special live episode of a Women's History Month event sponsored by the President's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Initiative and the Department of Women's and Gender Studies here at Merrimack College. Recorded on March 16, 2021, this event was entitled Reimagining Intersectional Justice, the Promise of Transnational Feminist Solidarity and featured our special guest speaker, Dr. Margot Okasawa Ray. The panel was hosted by Dr. Simona Sharoni, Professor of Women's and Gender Studies and Special Assistant to the President on Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. The panelists included Gabby Womack, Librarian and DEI Ambassador, and WGS faculty, Dr. Bahia Munam and myself. Our featured speaker, Dr. Margot Okasawa Ray, is an activist, author, transnational feminist, and professor emeritus from San Francisco State University. Notably for today's conversation as well, she was a member of the original Kambahi River Collective based in Boston that was in many ways an important founding moment for Black feminism in America. Good afternoon and welcome. My name is Simona Schiavone, and I am the Special Assistant to the President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and a Professor of Women's and Gender Studies um, at Merrimack College in North Andover, Massachusetts. It is my pleasure and privilege to welcome you to our keynote event celebrating Women's History Month. Our featured guest this afternoon is my good friend and sister in struggle, Dr. Margot Okazawa Ray, who embodies two concepts at the heart of this event, intersectional justice and transnational feminist solidarity. The full title of the event is Reimagining Intersectional Justice, the Promise of Transnational Feminist Solidarity. Also joining us this afternoon are three incredible women whose unwavering commitment to intersectional justice has left a mark at Merrimack College and beyond. Dr. Deborah Michael, my dear colleague and director of the Women's and Gender Studies Department and co-sponsor of this event. She's joined by Gabby Womack, a multi-talented librarian, historian, and one of our diversity, equity, and inclusion ambassadors, and Dr. Bahia Munem, a relatively new faculty member at Merrimack College, um, a wonderful addition to our women's and gender studies department, whose scholarly engagement with the themes of this session would greatly enrich our discussion this afternoon. Before we proceed with our program, 
I would like to comment on the historic relevance of this event. 18 years ago, the world lost an incredible young feminist, Rachel Coy, who was deeply committed to intersectional justice. Rachel, one of my beloved students at the Evergreen State College was crushed to death by an Israeli bulldozer on March 16, 2003, while undertaking nonviolent direct action to protect the home of a Palestinian family from demolition. Since her death, Rachel became a symbol of transnational solidarity, her passion, courage, and wisdom have inspired and guided me and many others around the world in our work for justice and peace. This event is dedicated to our memory. I will be posting a link to the Rachel Coy Foundation for Peace and Justice that was established after her death by her parents, Cindy and Craig, to carry out her important solidarity and work. And the song that you heard at the beginning of the event is one of many written to memorialize um, the important uh, contributions and the sacrifice that she made. I hope that those of you who have not heard about Rachel before will find her story inspiring. Now, please help me welcome Dr. Deborah Michaels. Thank you. And thank you, Simona, for this incredible opportunity. Um, before I begin my remarks, I just want to let you all know that, that you should tell your friends and those who couldn't be present today that we will be recording a, and um, this episode and it will comprise a special episode on the Living Out Loud podcast for, here at Merrimack College. In 1974, a group of feminist women of color met in Boston to organize around their needs and the vision of the future they wanted to see. Most of these women had been involved in the civil rights and women's movement, but decided to organize for themselves because of the racism they experienced in the women's liberation movement of the 1960s and 70s and the sexism of the civil rights movement. Their 1974 meeting and those that followed marked a founding moment for Black feminism and anti-racist, anti-sexist activism. It's worth noting that these women met at a time in Boston when it was dangerous for them to do so. The city was in the midst of court-ordered school desegregation with black students bused to white neighborhood schools and vice versa in an attempt or experiment at balancing educational disparities. And racist sentiment in the largely white Boston was at its peak. Forming a black women's organization in this climate meant risking violent backlash. And nevertheless, they persisted. Meeting to organize as women of color was an act of pure courage. They named themselves the Kambahi River Collective in honor of Harriet Tubman, who in her work as a Union spy and scout during the Civil War, led a group of soldiers in a raid along the Kambahi River in South Carolina that resulted in the liberation of more than 750 slaves. Three years later, in 1977, the Kambahi River Collective produced a manifesto that today, 44 years later, is still as remarkable, insightful, and revolutionary as it was then. The Kambahi River Statement changed the course of feminist history, 
launched Black feminism and women of color feminism and introduced the key concepts of identity politics and the multiple and intersecting layers of gender and racial oppression that Kimberly Crenshaw would later call intersectionality, but Kambahi identified it first. We still study the document that the Kambahi River Collective produced, not just in our women's and gender studies program here at Merrimack, but in women's and gender studies programs across the country. Students in the WGS Senior Seminar who are present here today have been reading the important book on Kambahi, How We Get Free, Black Feminism and the Kambahi River Collective, edited by Kianga Yamata-Taylor. That's because the Kambahi River Statement is as relevant today as when those words were first written. In the cultural climate in which we find ourselves, the Kambahi River Statement continues to provide the answer and the tools for creating a truly intersectional feminism and a socially just world. It is a rare privilege to be in the presence of historical actors and agents of change. And today we are privileged to enjoy such a gift because our speaker, Margot Okasawa Ray was part of the Kambahi River Collective. Although the group disbanded in 1980, Dr. Okasawa Ray and other collective notables such as Barbara Smith and, and um, Audre Lorde and many others continue their work throughout their lives and have written important works that advance history, literature, poetry, and make visible and audible the voices of women of color everywhere. And as a historian, I have to admit, I'm a little bit giddy to have this opportunity to hear, speak with, and learn from one of my heroes. Before Dr. Okasawa Ray speaks, uh, for a few words on her background from our librarian, historian, and DEI ambassador, Gabby Womack. Thank you, Deborah. So hi, everybody. Um, I'm going to honor uh, um, Margot's wishes to keep this short. So we'll just say uh, Dr. Margot Okazawa-Ray, Professor Emerita at San Francisco State University is an activist and educator working on issues of militarism, armed conflict and violence against women examined intersectionally. So I just wanna cut this short because we have a dance party to get to. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, thank you for honoring my wishes. And uh, thank you, Simona and um, Bahia for being here and organizing Simona this event with everyone else who made it possible. And Deborah, I wanna say that that introduction you gave is just one of the best I've ever heard uh, when presenting the Combahee River Collective and um, the work and everything, because you put it in a larger context of what was Boston at the time. And um, I'm very moved by that, you know, and thank you for your thoroughness, because I think it makes a difference and it will help me um, uh, kind of frame my comments here as well. So I would love to get a copy of that if you don't mind, and I won't plagiarize. <laughs> You're welcome to it and you're free to plagiarize. <laughs> yeah, anyway, thank you everyone for being here. And um, I just wanna say that I am speaking with you all today and I hope it will really be uh, as much of a conversation as my sort of, you know, talking about my experiences and my ideas. But I just wanna acknowledge that I am sitting on the Tongva land, unceded Tongva territory that is now uh, Claremont, California. And um, I moved from Ohlone territory that, was, that is Berkeley 
and now here. And um, when I think about Palestine and when I think about transnational, I think about land. And I think about that more and more as there's a more collective recognition of the importance of land and not just land, which is foundational, literally and figuratively, but also place, right? And as I'm uh, about to make my comments, I want you all to really think about where's your place, all of you here, right? Where is home and who are your people? So I'll just um, start with that. And I wanna begin with just the, a, a really important story my personal story um, uh, to, to frame this conversation. So um, I now identify as a transnational feminist and that's really significant, but arriving at this point started much earlier. And I wanna just identify those three points um, because you'll see how they all add up. So the first, point was I was born in Japan uh, to a Japanese mother and African-American father uh, right after World War II, so 1949. And he was part of the occupation forces uh, that uh, occupied Japan. And my mother um, was an um, upper middle class woman who was supposed to marry some rich guy, you know, some rich Japanese guy. They fell in love, they got together, and here I am but I'm not supposed to exist in that context. There were too many borders, right? One is the border um, that the US military created as occupiers, right? Another border or another set of borders had to do with the differences in race, class, gender, and nationality that, that my parents embodied, right? And they, those borders were never meant to be crossed. Uh, and so that's one. And as a result of that, I came to the U.S. in 1960. Uh, and, you know, I ended up in Utah and I just thought, OK, this is America. I had no idea where I was. Um, I lived in, you know, Japanese community my whole life up, at, up until that point. Um, and then, you know, after that, a couple of really important um, um, things. One obviously is Kambahi River Collective, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. But the other was in 1994, I uh, received a Fulbright Research uh, Scholarship to go to South Korea. And at the time, there were all these tensions between African American community people and um, Korean immigrant merchants in all the urban areas that I was familiar with, Boston, New York, DC. And of course we hear of the horrendous thing that happened with Latasha Harlins being shot by a Korean woman uh, merchant. And then the, um, the red apple boycotts in New York. And then of course the uprising after the verdict of the police officers in the beating of Rodney King, right? So I wanted to find out what Korean people learned about African-American people before they came to the States. I couldn't believe that they only learned about them or us when they arrived. So that was my project. But what happened when I arrived was, first of all, I couldn't speak the language. Second, um, I ended up 
in the middle of Seoul where there was a huge US military base. And Seoul is the capital of South Korea. And I'm looking around and thinking, oh my goodness, where am I? And then I later came to learn that there were over 100 installations at that time, right? Big bases and then little installations. And because I could speak Japanese, I was able to speak to the uh, older Korean people who had been colonized by Japan. So imagine me, this little brown person, you know, standing in the middle of Seoul, seeing the intersections of the imperial history, you know, that I embodied, you know, uh, my two uncles were killed during World War II, right? Uh, fighting for the Japanese Imperial Army. My father was part of the US Army and here I am, right? And so that moment, oh, and then there was also a time when there were women from the Philippines brought in to be sex workers around the US military bases. There's a whole system that was set up. And so I'm standing in a phone booth one day and somebody knocks on the window and asks me if I'm Filipina, right? So sort of embodying all these things all at once and thinking, oh my goodness, what does it mean to be embodying especially these two imperial nations, right? And I couldn't just say, oh, but I'm a good woman of color. You know, I'm, I oppose my government. I'm certainly not loyal to the Japanese government. Like that was not enough. And in the US, I recognize that as a woman of color, in quotes, you know, we sort of put our, ourselves on the side of marginalized and in some ways disenfranchised, in some ways literally disenfranchised, being prevented from voting. But in that moment, I came to recognize and then subsequently recognize the importance of including nation as a part of race, class, gender, sexuality. We all sort of say that in one word, right? Or one breath. And I challenge you all, invite you all to include this category of nation in any analysis you're doing about anything that's happening in the US, right? as well as thinking about what are the impacts of us who pay taxes to this government uh, who just bombed Syria, you know, six weeks into a new administration, you know, uh, on a tirade about China, what's happening in Yemen, all those things that we, because we're in a dominant category, don't have to even see, right? Unless you happen to go there or somebody tells you about it. And even somebody telling you about it, it's not the same as experiencing it. The third thing that was really important was I went to a feminist, um, there was a conference in Zurich um, that was um, connected to me through a friend in Sri Lanka, right? Told me about this conference in Zurich, I'm in the US, think about that little circuit. Um, about, uh, it was called the Feminist Debates on Peace and Security. And I gave a presentation and then another person, Maha Abudaye, who was the general, first and general um, director of an organization called Women's Center for Legal Aid and Counseling, right? We met at that conference. A year later, she invited me to become a consultant at her organization, uh, in, which was in both Ramallah and um, Jerusalem, right? And so, 
you know, I go there um, as the best title I've ever had, which is the feminist research consultant. I love that. I want to keep that forever. Um, and in, you know, going there and finding out again, getting this reinforcement that if the US government and uh, US people, uh, the Jewish lobby, the Zionist lobby here, and then the Christian Zionists, all the people who support the occupation of Palestine, it would not be possible, right? It would not be possible without that kind of support because that supports gets the state of Israel off the hook and so many different kinds of human rights violations and everything like that, right? So what I'm saying here are, is two things. One, I really urge you to include in your analysis, the category of nation, right? Two, that irrespective of how we identify, right? Our connections to the structures of power really matter, even if we're one of the good ones, right? You know, for, you know, people of color, women of color, you know, we hate hearing, well, but I'm a good white person. Yeah, okay, you may be, right? And there are these structural parts, right, that we have to take seriously. And that's what I'm urging you to do. So that's the first part of my message. And that's really been a foundation. Those three uh, things that I just described have been a real foundation in gaining a deeper and ongoing deepening understanding of what it means to be transnational, right? And global and feminist, uh, committed to the principles of intersectionality. Uh, and I need to take a breath, I'm so excited. <laughs> and I, <laughs> I'm glad we're not using interpreters or anything because I would have lost them about you know, 10 minutes ago. So I'm just going to take a brief breath and I invite you all to do the same. Um, so about the Combahee River Collective, again, that brilliant intro just really uh, set me very up very nicely for this. And I just want to clarify just a few key concepts here, right? Just so to be on the record about this. So one just important part of the history is that we were never an organization, as Deborah said, we were a series of retreats um, and all of us were doing activist things outside, obviously, right, for us to, and that's how we sort of generated various understandings. The other part that's really important as part of history is that we didn't start, go out to make history. You know, we didn't, we weren't wanting to put this on our resume or anything like that. I think we barely even had resumes because we were all so young at that time, right? What we wanted to do were two things. One, um, Deborah already mentioned, you know, about making a difference uh, in the wider world and in whatever context we were in, whatever settings, however we were organizing. I was very deeply involved in the school desegregation and busing stuff. Uh, and so, of course, that was important. The other thing was that part of it, part of us getting together was explaining ourselves to ourselves, right? Like, who are we when all these forces tell us that we don't exist, right? Um, and that one book that Barbara, you know, edited, all the all the women are white and all the 
I can't remember the exact title, but you know, it was only about black men and white women, right? Uh, and we said, wait a minute, we exist, right? And, and more than that, not just that we exist, but we exist in a very purposeful way. And that at that point, and the youngest of us at that point was in, in her 20s. And then the oldest one was like 28. So we were, you know, really in, in very formative years. Uh, and so we wanted to also theorize, okay? And this is the theory with a little t, which I think is the most profound kind of theories that help us explain the world and the lives around us, right? And our places in it. So we were theorizing about what it meant to be all those things that we described in that statement, right? And the, the important things about that um, is that we were that we use the word patriarchy, imperialism, socialism, and we were proud of it. You know, we were very proud that we were feminists. And I remember later, you know, when the term uh, we uh, when the term womanist came out, we were like, mm, you know, that doesn't. We just felt like that was a term that was more about identities in a sense, than, than the deep kind of intersectional politics and radical, not radical feminist in that conventional sense of radical feminist, but radical comma feminist identities that we were really, uh, and, and, and projects uh, and actions that we were engaged in. So that's something I'd like you all to think about. But the other is this question of identity politics, right? And um, it just is, kind of going haywire these days, right? In a sense that when we said identity politics, what we were actually, I think, saying, we didn't, we just barely had those words, was that our identities are always political. It's about power, right? And when we said, if black women were free, everybody else would be free. We weren't saying we were the most oppressed or the most marginalized. Because if you read around that statement, you'll, say, you'll see that the institutions and the structures of oppression embody you know, um, uh, exclusion and marginalization in very specific ways, right? And that if we, if we transform the institutions and transform those values, then everybody who's oppressed you know, would have a chance to be free because all those things were embedded in the institutions. Does that make sense? So I just want to make that really clear. We were not saying we we're the most oppressed, you know, far from it. Uh, and so um, that's something that, um, uh, and we were not saying that, we were not operating also out of a scarcity of politics that I think is so deeply, has become so deeply embedded in how we're seeing the world, we meaning people here, especially in the US, uh, are seeing the world, right? And by identity politics, I mean, by politics of scarcity, what I'm talking about is an assumption that there's not enough of anything that's valuable, including pain, right? That And this is where the kind of oppression Olympics comes in also, 
right? That somebody's more painful than somebody else and had worse experience than somebody else because there's not enough work, worse experience to go around, right? As if there weren't, right? But the other part of the politics of scarcity, I think that is the most devastating piece is that whatever there is, we're not gonna share, right? And that's the individualist kind of ethics and it, you can be collectively individualist, right? In the sense of being ethnocentric or, you know, whatever centric you are, right? And so when you put those two things together, an assumption of scarcity and the value of not sharing because there's not enough, right? It, it creates chaos and it creates divisions, right? It creates unnecessary conflict, right? So... What if we assume, even if there were not enough, right? And I don't, I don't agree with that in so many ways, right? And by in not enough, I'm talking about material things, but in, in, in some ways, that's the least of it. I'm talking about things like time, um, status, value, worth, right? There's not enough of that. And so not everybody can be valued, right? Only certain people. Um, and, but what if we assume that there's plenty of everything, right? And that no matter what we have, we're gonna share. That would create such a different set of dynamics among us, right? So that's the, the other thing. And then um, I wanna talk about, you know, I've been invited so many times to, do, to talk about Comedy River Collective and all of that stuff. And I wanna start with, the question to the audience or any clump of you, any cluster of you who are out there, what would be the statement you would write now? Write, W-R-I-T-E, comma, write, R-I-G-H-T, now. That is right in this present moment, right? That does several things. One has a big kind of, um, macro and um, uh, kind of institutional structural analysis that takes into account your um, experiences of living, of who you are in the world, right? And that could suggest some methodology or some um, way of doing something. And finally, and I think in some ways, the absolutely foundational, what would be your vision, right? What would you be trying to create given where we are in this current historic moment, right? Where things are happening transnationally. It's not just us feminists who are doing transnational, right? Um, globalization and transnational have been going on for quite a long time, you know, starting with the colonizers, right? Um, and so I invite you to really think about that. And I think, you know, Deborah, as you were reading um, that intro, I was thinking about geography and I was thinking about the significance of one's work. And by one, I'm not talking in just singularly, but collectively, right? And how do we need to think about our work less as work and thinking about what is, what is our life work? 
What is our purpose for being on this planet? And how would that shape our understandings of work, job, career, you know, all those things that uh, we tend to use interchangeably? Okay, I think that's it for now. <laughs> and I would really like to hear from folks, first of all, any questions. I don't want this to be a bilateral at the military term, uh, just between me and the, and the folks uh, in, in, uh, who are here today, but really also conversation among yourselves. So um, we can start with questions or um, uh, I think um, Bahia, you're up next. So um, sorry, I hope I didn't take up too much time. No, that was absolutely wonderful and so generative to think about these golden nuggets that you dropped for us, really. Um, I'm just going to sort of reiterate that before, um, before I get to some of the remarks that I had prepared. But, you know, this idea of land on, and place, on whose land do we stand, right? And I think that that's just so important for us uh, to think about and to think about deeply. Um, and of course, that's connected to my own intersections as a, a person who, um, who has Palestinian heritage and Latin American heritage as well, uh, who was displaced and multiple times as a result of militarism, both in the Middle East and in Latin America. So that really, really is a, is a powerful node to, to think about. Um, and I think about that in my own scholarship as well. Um, and also this idea of this privilege of not seeing. And I think that we don't have to see what we don't have to see because of the privileges that we have and how powerful that is uh, to contemplate that not looking, unseeing is, or not necessarily unseeing, but not seeing, because I think unseeing is something that cannot necessarily be done. Um, and this category of nation, which I think is so pivotal and critical in uh, transnational work, transnational feminism and transnational feminist solidarity work. Um, and I think that that's something that um, not only is, is, and I connect that very much this politics of scarcity in contemporary in what we're living right now as well. So that was the other nugget that you dropped. I, and I'm just thinking about these things and it's just um, really sort of electrifying my brain in so many ways. So, so thank you for that because it really is a way to, uh, to think about these really enduring intersections um, that and these nodes that we, we need to hold together and to continue to think about and, and, and theorize and uh, activate around. Um, and I think that that's just really uh, so, so helpful. So thank you, that was just really wonderful. I appreciate that so much. And, I, and I know, I'm sure the audience um, does as well. Um, and so I wanna begin uh, first by saying that if, uh, if anyone wants to ask a question, if you wanna ask an anonymous question, please put it in the chat. Um, and if you'd like to actually ask a question that we can all hear, you can put that in the chat simultaneously and then uh, we'll give you speaking privileges, I guess. <laughs> um, and so 
Uh, again, thank you uh, deeply, Margo. I, I can't overstate, and I'll echo some of what uh, Deborah said, I can't overstate the enduring significance um, of the Kambahi River Collective Statement to me personally. Um, as a budding activist um, from you know, working class roots, making my way and fighting my way into, into college, uh, but also having, um, you know, these other, uh, these other intersections as a, a queer woman, as a woman of color with Palestinian roots and, and Latin American roots. Um, and um, also in the ways that I began to think about my own scholarship, I think the significance has been so profound, but also to me as an educator. In all four of my classes this semester, uh, my students read the Kambahi River Collective. And, um, and to me, there's such a clarity in the way uh, it addresses race, gender, sexuality, class. And I always thought of nation, in that, and maybe perhaps because of my own intersections as well, and which I didn't sort of reduce it to just identity politics. Um, and so while simultaneously firmly uh, grasping interlocking systems of, of oppression uh, brought on by imperialism, racial capitalism, right? And, and I think about Ruth Wilson Gilmer's uh, erudite statement when she says, capitalism requires inequality and racism enshrines it. And so uh, to me, that's just, again, so powerful. And it, it it's, was reiterated in some ways with uh, uh, Wilson Gilmore's statement, but I always thought that that was part of the Kambahi River Collective. I always integrated that. And so um, this integrated analytic approach uh, pushed me to think in layered ways about uh, my own personal intersections, but also about other contexts, about Latin America, about the Middle East, um, especially about Palestine, um, and thinking about nationalism, for instance. And uh, there's one particular thing that sticks out, the struggle in, from the Kambahi River Collective, the struggle uh, with Black men against racism, right? And um, uh, and the struggle while struggling with men about sexism, and I and and I brought that I can bring that out and push that out to other contexts with with you know Palestine for instance uh, and settler colonialism and racism as well. So when I assigned the Kambahi River Collective statement, my hope is that it, that students, if not immediately, but over time, will also think more robustly about intersectionality and their own uh, positions, right? That uh, we can for forego um, the connections that we have to structures of power, as you indicated, that that's really pivotal. Mm -hmm. So, um, and so I'm gonna try and formulate a question finally after my comments and I'm hoping that- Great comments. So, <laughs> Uh, so today, you know, uh, as as um, Simona began the talk with, she, it, it's the 18th anniversary of Rachel Corey's death, um, an American activist, and she was she died protecting the home of um, of Palestinian people in Gaza from demolition, um, which is used as a consistent tactic of collective punishment by the Israeli state and the Israeli army which is a flagrant violation of international law. And she literally put her body um, 
which is, you know, uh, really jarring. And, um, and until today, it's, um, it's, it's difficult to, to remember um, the, what happened, what happened to her. Um, and she was killed in 2003. And when I think about that, I think about the same year, I, I think that you actually went to Palestine, if, if I'm not mistaken. Is that the same year that you went to Palestine? Uh, I went and uh, I started living there in 2005. Oh, okay. And so, um, I, and I'm wondering though, since Rachel was part of this um, international solidarity movement, um, I wonder what impact her own activism and um, around um, militarism and settler colonialism, um, I, I wonder if that had a connection to your own if, if that was a, a, a pivotal moment for you as well. I know that you talked about uh, meeting um, uh, Maha Budeya and how that kind of had an impact uh, on you and your uh, connection to, to Palestine. And I, I was just wondering if Rachel Corey had a connection as well. Well, um, let me just say something about martyrdom and um, people also, many people don't set out to become martyrs, right? Yeah. They end up in that situation. And um, I think, you know, in class many years ago, I asked my class, what would you be willing to give up your life for? Mm. Right? What's the cause? What's the issue? And, you know, people said various things. And then Sarah, this one student said, I think the question is, what would you be willing to live your life for? You know, day after day, facing whatever, you know, all of that. So I want to honor Rachel Corey and, and other people who have given up their lives. And for the rest of us who are alive, the question is, how are we going to live our lives in a way that honors the martyrdom, right? Honors the, the significance of all Rachel's actions, other people's actions, because we have to make the connection, right. right? We can't just be bystanders, right, in, in that. So I think, you know, it's really interesting you asked that question by here because it's like in the US, when white people do good things, we don't say, oh, good job, you know? It's like, okay, we're getting on with our lives, right? And I think people, in Palestine, we're not surprised, no. you know, because the Israeli apparatus is brutal. Anybody who gets in the way, Cornell West, right? <laughs> you know, and now if anybody has any illusions that this is a meritocratic system where we live in, that should just, you know, make you quite, but do you know what I mean? So yeah. And, and even, you know, um, so yes, of course, people there saw it and, 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 but it wasn't like a major event in that there were th those similar events happening all the time to them. Right? I, and so I, that's I, important. Yeah, no, I I'm think so, that's really important. I'm, I'm so glad that you said that too, because I think that um, there was, a, th there was this other thing that happened with, uh, with Rachel's death as well, that, um, um, and, you know, th there was an, a sort of an erasure of the significance of the Palestinian de deaths um, 
around that same time. And then another kind of thing I want to throw in here is uh, um, I I had Tamimi, right? Remember when she stood up against the army guy and she was put in jail and stuff. Shortly after that, I I go to Palestine every summer, you know, to spend uh, my summers there. And um, Yasmin, who at the time was maybe 12 or no, younger than that, around 10, you know, you know, I walked in the door, we said hi, we hugged and everything. And she said, have you heard of Ahed Tamimi? I said, yeah, I heard about her, you know, so, you know, it was, it was amazing what happened. And she said, but you know what? She said, if she were dark and she wore a hijab, uh, hijab, it wouldn't have made news. Right. So even this young person recognizing intersection, this is intersectionality. Yeah. Right. And it's because she had blonde hair and she didn't wear a hijab. Her mother's actually said the same exact yes, thing when she was in. That, right. But yeah. it's interesting that my little Arabic teacher and my niece, right, had that analysis. And as soon as I walked in, she talked about that. Wow. Right. And so again, thinking about who can see what, who can see what, and who refuses to see something or cannot because of our own social location. Mm. And what do we, how do we have to shift our position to be able to see the things that if we stay still, we'll never be able to see. Mm. Yeah. Sorry, I just kind of <laughs> went off on a little a little tangent here. I know there are more questions. Gavi, you had a question, right? Yeah. Um, so my question has to do with this kind of um, hero worship thing that starts, you know, uh, years after civil rights leaders and activists have made a mark. Um, they are now heroes. We, we talk that, about them in a very uh, sanitized way at school. And I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about how people actually reacted to your activism and the Kambahi River Collective at the time when, when you were meeting together and writing your uh, this um, statement, because I know that it's got to have been a lot different from what we're talking about the impact right now. Well, first of all, I think it's fair to say that we were not that visible outside the feminist community, the women's communities in Boston, right? And um, we became more visible when, um, uh, because remember, we were not an organization. We didn't have an agenda, you know, activist agenda or anything like that. Um, We individually were very much involved in, Uh, local organizing and things like that. So for example, Barbara Smith was uh, doing the, there was a group called the Committee to End Sterilization Abuse Against Puerto Rican Women, right? Right. That was so rampant uh, at the time in the 70s and the 80s. Um, And I, like I said, I was involved in school desegregation and all kinds of things. When the murders of the 12 Black women happened in Boston, kind of like just, it seemed like one week after the other, um, there was a, there was an organizing that happened, right? Uh, and we formed something called the Coalition for Women's Safety. And it was the first multiracial coalition. We meaning um, uh, members of the Combahee River Collective 
participated in it, but the organizing really began at a drug rehab treatment center for women and their kids in Roxbury neighborhood of Boston and was housed and um, hosted by Katie Portis, who was the executive director at the time. And all these other groups came and we started meeting at Women Inc. Right, Combahee River Collective produced a statement about the situation, right? But it was a whole massive interracial coalition in Boston, right? Called the Coalition for Women's Safety. We organized the big demonstrations where you see the pictures of us, third world women, we cannot live with our lives. That was that march and it was organized by that coalition. Um, well, what was very interesting about that organizing was that the white feminists who mostly lived in Cambridge and Somerville, maybe a few sprinkled in Jamaica Plain, right? Um, organized themselves and called themselves the support group for women's safety, right? So we were the main kind of body and then the support group. And they said to us, tell us how we can be in solidarity with you. You know, we're not gonna be in the lead obviously, you all are, are the leaders of this whole kind of thing. And we have resources, we have access to certain things, you know, so that combination of the Coalition for Women's Safety and the support group for women's safety was for me a big, real beginning to think about how to do solidarity politics, recognizing place, right? Cambridge and, you know, and if you know anything about Boston, you don't say Boston to refer to the whole thing. You gotta <laughs> say Boston and you gotta say Cambridge, right? Exactly. Otherwise people get an attitude and correctly because the river does lots of different kinds of things. Huge um, but yeah, that was the first example of really being in solidarity and, and recognizing the, the ways that white women understood, right? Their role in this multiracial organizing, which was so deep. Right, and this was, we're talking 1979. Okay. So what is that? Whoa, <laughs> 32 years or 42 years ago, right? Um, and so, and the other thing, you know, Gabby, I'm so glad you raised this question because I wrote down on, on this piece of paper, I'm taking notes of what you all are saying. It's not the history we made that, who we were at that particular moment, yes, that absolutely mattered, right? In that context, you know, that was a time where, you know, LG, um, uh, there was only L and G basically at the time, right? We're still using hetero, heterosexist kind of pronouns. So instead of saying she regarding one's partner, you know, people would say he, or, you know, they put up a picture with them and their male friend or something at the office. I mean, it was like that, you know, it was not safe to be out in any way like that. Um, but yes, we did certain things. We broke new ground. We conceptualized things in a different way. But for me, I don't want you to leave me there. I don't want you to leave me in the seventies and say, oh, she's a veteran of the Combahee River Collective or something. First of all, that's a military term and I'm against it. But anyway, you get the idea is what significance, you know, over the lifetime do certain experiences have, right? For me, that's the question, right? 
And um, we can't just rest on our laurels. We can't say, yeah, I was a member of the Comedy River Collective and look how great I am, right? No, the question is, what have you done since then? You know, what did you do with what you learned? And how have you extended that? And I think um, one thing that I've come back to with the Combahee River Collective is that we had fun, right? We were serious, straight serious, as uh, we said, straight as uh, serious as a heart attack, right? But we also had fun. We baked cookies, you know, especially. And uh, I'll tell you the significance, I'll show you the significance of that in a minute. But we did things where we generated our joy, right? So it wasn't just doom and gloom and analysis and paralysis because of the analysis. We really tried to you know, bring you know, all of our, ourselves into it. And it wasn't easy at all. There were lots of contradictions within it. you know. Um, and also it's important to recognize that even though women's studies professors often gave us difficult times since then when we became professors ourselves, you know, it was the women's studies professors, the later ethnic studies professors, everybody who made Combahee River Clay collective statement, what it, it activated it, right? So it could have just stayed in Zila Eisenstein's book, right? Or it could have been circulated just among a few people, but it was activated by both the, the gender study back then, women's studies professors, and then later the activists. So the other question is, how do we activate knowledges, you know, that are worthwhile from the past? And also, then how do we extend the knowledge and not just put it like in a museum, you know? And for sure that the statement resonates in so many ways, that is for sure. And I'm honoring that legacy, absolutely. And it has to be extended, right? So for example, if we say, if we take the category of nation seriously, do you think the Black Lives Matter or the killing of Black folks here in the US would have made any headlines if we're not connected to the US? No, there are Black folks being killed by police all the time in other places, right? There's something about being connected to the US state, right? That also gives us access you know, to media, all kinds of things, right? And then now the French are blaming the Black Lives Matter and ethnic studies and all of that for the mess they're having, right? With, as if Black folks in France had no agency of their own, that somehow it's those bad Black people in the US who are, you know, making the Black folks in France go crazy, as well as the Muslims and everybody who's been oppressed for generations by the French not to mention colonize. So anyway. <laughs> so Margo, I have a question, but before I ask my question, there's a couple of questions anonymously in the chat mm -hmm. that I wanted to share um, with you. Um, one asks um, where you see ableness fitting into all of this paradigm of intersectionality. And the other asked um, about how um, those of us who are white can be better allies, can be better support um, for movements for people of color. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the thing about being an oldie is, you know, we wrote a statement at a particular moment. You know, at that time, there wasn't a, a good consciousness about 
disabilities and abilities. There wasn't any consciousness about transgender, right? All those things. And that's why I'm saying, what's the statement you would write, right? What is the statement you would write that could include all the ways that we've developed over time, right? So one thing that uh, we can't do really is to hold people accountable back then for what we didn't know and that we didn't see, we didn't have access to. You can hold us accountable now, you know, for not, you know, uh, talking about certain things and, you know, like that, that's different. I invite you to really, really seriously, you know, think about what is the statement you would write and would it continue to identify bodies or would there be some other bigger set of principles, right? Because new bodies are gonna emerge every time there's a new, new body and then group of people get together and raise their consciousness, they're gonna say, hey, what about us, right? And so what might be a different kind of statement that would be able to, to invite, uh, validate, uh, recognize, any new group of people who emerges or any individual who emerges that doesn't, uh, who, do, who don't fit the existing paradigm, right? So that's something um, that's really important. So absolutely, if we understood it back then, we would have included it, you know, any of these other things. Um, and thanks for raising that. Margo, uh, I wanted, I'm sorry. Yeah. So I wanted ahead. to ask you about the term identity politics. And I have a two-part question. I love that you're asking people to kind of think about the manifesto they would write today because uh, students in the senior seminar have to write, have to do that at the end of the semester. They have to write their own Oh, good. Manifesto. I want to read them. And they, I will happily share them. And they want to, and they have to do some of the things that you're asking mm -hmm. um, to situate themselves, to think about the world they want to live in. And so I have a two-part question. One is you mentioned earlier about you were all young and figuring out who you were in the world. And I think about the time in which you were all doing that versus the time in which young people today are trying to do that in this country, particularly because that's, you know, who, who I teach every day. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think, uh, you know, I don't want to romanticize the past, but certainly the economics are different. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the pressures that, that students have to pay student loans, to afford okay. college, to do any of the things they're doing are certainly steeper than when I went to college. Um, so I'm wondering how you would how you would sort of recommend that in the context of all of the sort of individualism that, you know, they have to think about the careers and making money and paying their loans back and all of the pressures they feel today, how do they figure themselves out in their connection? Like what advice would you have for these young people um, to figure themselves out in a way in which they can produce this sort of manifesto for the future? Mm -hmm. And the second question I have is the identity politics question, which is related to this, you know, the right has really appropriated this wonderful term that you all you know, created and invented um, to instead of understanding, as you put it, um, you know, that who we are, that our identities are always political, they are now using it to sort of dismiss all of the things that people on the left bring up and try to raise attention to. So mm -hmm. I guess those are the two things I wanted, uh, wondered if you could address. Yeah, so I'll start with the last. You know, people aren't gonna give up stuff just because somebody else is asking for it. It's a struggle, right? It's a struggle. 
and the right and people with access to the media can appropriate anything. You know, in my day, there was a laundry detergent that came out called ERA, E-R-A. And it was exactly at the time that people were struggling to get the Equal Rights Amendment ratified in this country, right? And that's just an exact silly example, but something I remember the ways that important concepts and, you know, um, phrases and terminology is um, like freedom, you know, be, get freedom, buy an iPhone, you know, but it's all related to capitalist production, right? And that we cannot dismiss that, you know, so we know, we know that that kind of appropriation is going to happen. That's why I think we need to have a vision and be driving toward that mission and not keep resp responding and reacting. And because as long as we're reacting, we are tied to the agenda of the right. And that is not to say that we can't have immediate goals, short-term goals where we're pushing back and saying, you're not gonna kill us, right? We're gonna carve, you know, at the same time, it's a both and moment, as I've been saying, like both things are true. We're gonna resist, I think, but a lot of our energy has to go into envisioning and I would say deepening relationships because solidarity is not just about tasks. Solidarity is absolutely emotional and spiritual connections and not just connections around the oppressor. That's the worst thing you can do is be connected just opposing the oppressor. As June Jordan would say, once they're gone, then what? You know, what are you going to be united around, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's just a given, Deborah, that all these wonderful things that we come up with are going to be co-opted because they can see the power of it, right? Um, so I think we just need to proceed right? with, again, our own agenda, without, you know, really understanding how we um, build together and the vision that we're, we're really moving toward. And a vision can't be anti, it can't be anti-racism, anti this and anti that, because that continues to tie us to the dominant processes that are going on. And I just remember something I wanna say, I, 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 I would really love it if people here and beyond started talking, not just about racial capitalism, but racial and gendered capitalism. There are two things, we know that when we look at the global economy, right? And so I don't want us to sort of elevate race above gender because they, they intersect, right? They go together in the labor force. We see that now, especially in COVID, right? The, the racial and gendered nature of capitalism. So please insert the gender and I'll talk to Ruthie about this <laughs> and others who've not included it. Um, and then I forgot your second question. I got too excited. I'm so sorry. That's okay. I was asking what advice you would give to students who are trying to oh, figure yes. themselves out in this, in this context. Mm -hmm. And that is such a key context for us, right? Um, remember that we were children of the civil rights movement, that we were both participants and we were the immediate beneficiaries, right? Which meant that there was many more dollars for us to go to college, right? Um, I ended up with a, a student loan debt, but 
it was $1,800. And at the time, it seemed like a big amount. You know, the tuition was $8,000 or something. Um, but anyway, that has a huge difference, right? That has a huge difference. So um, one thing is, I think, also I, I criticize myself and my generation of academics for this too, and, and people who have taught is, we overtalk critical thinking without really teaching enough how to, how to build and how to generate and how to envision possibilities, right? And so part of envisioning possibilities and is recognizing that we have to figure out collective ways to think about things and do things, right? And that means, um, uh, for example, This, this connecting ourselves from some of the material things, you know, that we're, we're, we're um, so enamored with and attached to that seem to give us certain kinds of meaning. So that's one thing, right? Um, that the fact that students are coming out with $100,000, $200,000 student loan is no joke, obviously. And it's gonna dictate where, they, where they're gonna go to work, right? Having said that then, Shouldn't part of our agenda in organizing be a socialist agenda? So certain things are absolutely free, like education, for example, right? Everybody should be able to go to college. So that's a kind of part of a vision question, not just, you know, how do we uh, admit students to colleges and things, but how do we finance education in such a way that everybody can go to college free but then when you think about it, this is a very good capitalist trick, right? You keep people indebted, you keep people without health care, and they're going to be much more acquiescent. Isn't it? Right? And so we have to deal fundamentally with capitalism. All that to say, Deborah, I feel, I feel for the students, you know, and I don't know, I don't know what to do about it the individual's people's situations, right? What I think about it is, I wonder what would happen if we would think more closely about how to rethink housing, for example, right? Um, how do we all need to have our own individual apartments, right? Can we, you know, in the old days, <laughs> I'm an oldie, you know, collectivity was a real important practice, not just, a concept, right? So there were bicycle collectives and healthcare, you know, women's health collectives. And we lived, all of us of that generation probably lived in some kind of collective or another. It was fraught, you know, they were fraught. There's no question about it. But we had that sensibility of putting whatever resources we had, putting them together, right? Having said that, today's economic situation is no joke. I know that you know, and it shapes people, uh, this, this newer generation of people in very profound ways. And I, and I can't imagine how profound it is, to be honest, because I'm too far away from it, you know. And at the same time, I really feel for you. I really do. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, pose a question. Somebody from the audience uh, had a question 
Um, and they ask, uh, I'm wondering about the objection to the term womanist. Could you talk more about that? And um, they it's also- historical, wonder, yeah. Is there and, another part to that question? Yeah, there? there's just another part. So if, and if that's also, um, yeah, they, they say, I'm, I'm also wondering if that's a personal feeling or a common feeling among the collective, but I think you answered by saying that. Yeah, it was common feeling at the time because we were really putting ourselves out by saying we're feminists and we're black, right? And the womanist was sort of putting the black ahead of the feminist, we thought, and um, we thought it was kind of a dilution of the power of feminism, right? Uh, and um, it was a way that we could honor our politics that were socialist, anti-imperialist, all those things, and then be able to connect with other people around feminist principles, you know, being also being people outside the US as well, right? And um, this is where, and I don't know how to say this, to be honest, right? I want us to embrace a politics that can transcend and take into account specific identities, right? And that can move the movement, move the movement, uh, okay. Move our work forward, you know, in a way that's really generative. And um, I think part of the problem that I have personally with identity politics as it's practiced is that it relies on certain definitions of who a person is and they're essentialist right? The essentialist ways that people are identified. And then the next person you meet is they're not going to fit that. And then are you going to say, well, you're not one of us, right? And so I think for me, the central question is, what is the relationship between our own identities, which is different from how we're classified? And I want to make that distinction, how we identify who we say we're in the world, with a world we're trying to create and with the movements that are working in that direction. That's for me the question. And if you want to use womanist, you know, go ahead. You know, I don't, I don't care really. What I care is that are you behind the principles, you know, that are going to get us to a place where we want? And are we in the basically in the same cat, you know, in the same none of these metaphors work, but, you know, do we share a common vision, right? That's what I care about. I don't care how you identify, to be honest. I care less and less about that. I want to know where you're going to be when the stuff hits the fan. And that goes with white women who want to be allies. You know, you figure it out. You know better about whiteness in some ways than people of color do. You sit across tables you know, with your family and stuff, learn from them. Like we learned about our own people, right? We can tell you what it means to be white or what we want you to do more of or less of. But I think that kind of learning is better when it's really grounded in your settings, in your context, your own histories and genealogies, right? Otherwise it's just, we're just giving you a recipe.
that, that was great. Thank you for, uh, for that robust uh, response. I'm also really uh, thankful to you for bringing up June Jordan, who was a transnational feminist, uh, was writing about Palestine in the early 80s. One of the uh, earliest people. Exactly. And, um, and I think that she's, um, there's an illusion in, in, in when we talk about uh, solidarity and how, how pivotal she was, I know for me uh, as well. So I, um, I was wondering if anyone else had any, um, any remarks or questions that you might want to ask anyone in the, in the panel, any uh, closing remarks? I know that uh, DJ uh, Moore wants to uh, get her groove on there. <laughs> Yeah, it's not just DJ Moore. DJ Moore, love and joy. Um, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I used to be DJ OR. And then somebody said to me, but you're not an either or person. You better name yourself DJ Moore, love and joy. So that's how the name happened. And it's I'm transforming myself. <laughs> We do have one more uh, or a couple more questions in the chat. I think you already answered one of them. The other one, um, I was thinking maybe we can answer them through email so that we can have some dance time still. What are your thoughts on that, y'all? Yeah, okay. Um, so we'll, we'll answer your, uh, your question in the email, all right? Thank you. <laughs> Got an idea for an episode or want to join our team? Email us at livingoutloud at merrimack.edu. Executive producers are Deborah Michaels and Tiffany Begensterns. Audio engineering and editing by Michael Senoff. Living Out Loud is made possible with the generous support of a Provost Innovation Grant and assistance from the Center for Excellence in Teaching and Learning.